Welcome everyone to Discipleship Podcasts with the Bend International Church of Christ. I'm Joey Hungerford and I just want to introduce you to season eight of our podcast, which is the year 2023. And we're exploring a lot of real life theology this year, the Holy Spirit, uh, faithful faith, the grand meta narrative of the Bible, disciple making, and so much more. So I'm excited that you're here. I hope that you stay tuned. Please give us a review and share it with your friends. God bless. And we'll be speaking about this throughout the month today, specifically, why is the new birth necessary? To start with, why even talk about it? And for a a lot of us in the room, we often view this as perhaps a one-time event or a past event or perhaps something theological, or perhaps something that's just a, a 10-part uh, Bible study series, and then we're, we're good to go. Um, <laughs> we're going to lean into it because God has so much more that we could get out of it. So I want to start off with a few quotes, perhaps some people who will give us some meaning. Uh, around the 3rd, 4th century, John Chrysostom, a bishop in Constantinople, he said this about the new birth. You've seen how numerous are the gifts of baptism. Although many men think that the only gift it confers is the remission of sins, we have counted its honors to the number of ten. And then by my count, he says eight things here, but he says the further gifts of sanctification, righteousness, uh, adoption, inheritance, that may may be brothers and members of Christ and become dwelling places for the Spirit. There's so much uh, richness in the new birth. And a couple more from Martin Luther, fast forward to this Reformation father in the 1500s, and he says this, in baptism, every Christian has enough to study and to practice all his life. That's a lot. He always has enough to do to believe firmly what baptism promises and brings victory over death and the devil, forgiveness of sin, God's grace, the entire Christ, and the Holy Spirit with his gifts. In short, the blessings of baptism are so boundless that if timid nature considers them, it may well doubt whether they could all be true. And just one more sentence from a different place from him. Let everyone esteem his baptism as a daily dress in which he is to walk constantly, that he may ever be found in the faith and its fruits, that he suppress the old man and grow up in the new. So they already gave us a a couple of reasons of why it is necessary. But they speak to this ongoing fruitfulness, this ongoing effect of baptism, that it's not the one-time event, it's really the baptized life. So if you're thinking this morning, why, why go back to my baptism? Why think about it? Why think about the new birth in general? Well, that's when we experience the fruits and the richness and Jesus in a whole new way. And it's by thinking about the rebirth again that we can learn more and grow more in Jesus himself. And the new birth itself, it might be theology, it might be words on the page, but it brings us into such a union with Christ that the more we think about it, learn about it, talk about it, I think the closer we can grow with Jesus. So we want to live the new birth lifestyle, not just this one-time event in the past. We want to have a powerful memory of our new birth. So I should also say, along with sharing about the Holy Spirit and the welcome, let me know if you'd like to share about your new birth experience for our communion. And uh, uh, throughout the month, we want to have people share just before communion and talk about 
what the new birth means to them and how that connects with our communion. This way of life that we want to have vivid in our minds and vivid in our hearts. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. So I have an illustration, and this is where people go, oh no, one of Joey's illustrations. My, my Marvel ones fall flat. I made a notebook illustration a couple of sermons ago. That fell flat. So who's read a... Which one was good? The duck one. Okay, good. That one's stuck. All right. I'll keep... Which one's... Oh, yes. Good, good. Well, hopefully you know about my illustrations, but... You can do whatever you want as long as it connects to the Word of God and brings people to the Word of God. I hope that just encourages you. Like, who's ever read Pride and Prejudice? Oh, okay, great, great. This is for Megan and Jesse then. <laughs> and to bring us to Jesus, all of us, not just for them. But in Pride and Prejudice, whether it's the, maybe you saw the film, the BBC version from the 90s or the, the Keira Knightley version, and I skipped through them myself, I admit. And, uh, but anyways, there's this guy. There's this cringe moment. Uh, maybe the entire film is cringe. But there's a cringe moment in Pride and Prejudice where there's this guy, Mr. Collins, who proposes, right? All right, I'm looking at the ones who are like, yes. <laughs> He's not the, the main guy, Mr. Darcy. I don't want to explain the whole book, but... Mr. Collins has a cringe moment where he proposes to Lizzie, the main character, and he barely even knows her, and he just decides, this is the woman for me. He says, I even had to write down the line, I singled you out as the companion of my future life. And then he begins to list all the reasons, like I'm a member of the clergy, and you're getting older, and of course you should marry me, and they barely know each other, and all this stuff. <laughs> and uh, he goes on where she keeps saying, no, <laughs> and nodding her head and saying, no, I'm not interested, but he's totally oblivious to it, right? It's so, so cringe. And so he goes on, he says, oh, I know, I know, it's customary for a young woman to say no, but they really mean yes, they just want to tease the men. And she says, uh, no, she starts getting more emphatic. <laughs> I know, as I read these lines, it'll get more cringe. And she says, no, I cannot marry you, pretty emphatically. And then he's got a couple more great ones. Basically says, no, it'll be great. And he says, uh, I must therefore conclude that you are not serious in your rejection of me. I shall choose to attribute it to your wish of increasing my love by suspense, according to the usual practice of elegant females. And then she has to get up from the table when he says, oh, I, I want to prove to you the violence of my affections. And she's like, okay, goodbye. So that's Mr. Collins. And he's totally oblivious to the vibe and the message she's putting off. Not picking up the signals. Why is the new birth necessary? Often we don't pick up the signals. Often we're oblivious. Often it, things are clear in God's word, but we totally miss the message. I totally missed the message for years of why my new birth was necessary. So today we're going to be in Romans chapter 2, talk about messages that we often get wrong and people miss. And I hope it'll equip us, if you're trying to convince someone of the necessity for new birth, to talk through the messages we all often get wrong and that we all can identify with. Over in Romans chapter 2, and just some background. So uh, again, don't be Mr. Collins. <laughs> we want to we pick up these messages and not get them wrong in Romans chapter 2. 
Background on Romans. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and there's Gentile Christians there, and there's Jewish Christians there. In fact, for a while, the Jewish Christians were kicked out and had to come back. So for multiple chapters after Romans 2, he's writing about how they can all get along, and he's convincing them of God's justification and everything God is doing for them is a reason for why they should get along. And Paul is longing to be with them. He cares a lot about them. He wants to be with them face to face. But because he can't be there, he wants to tell them these extremely important things about how they can live in Rome and make sense of their situation. So the first message we often get wrong, and these are going to go pretty quickly, so don't worry that there's four of them, is we think, well, I know who sinners are. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says this. You, therefore, have no excuse when you pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point, point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. When you think of those sinners, what message usually forms in your mind? Without even really knowing those sinners, we can be like the Mr. Collins. We can be, oh, I know those sinners. And we form these messages in our mind, right? Like, well, compared to them, I'm a saint. Well, at least I'm, I'm not as bad as them, right? So I'm, I must be in pretty good standing. I probably don't have to do much because I know I'm better morally more righteous in some way than those sinners. We can think, wow, that's a really bad person, or wow, I'm a really good person. But what does the, the scripture tell us we should be thinking? You who cast judgment are without excuse. Exactly the opposite message that we often think to ourselves. The root of a person's sin, usually it's failing to love their neighbor failing to love God in some way. And really, if anything, we can probably identify, if we're tempted to think, well, I'm, I'm better than that sinner, they should really be more a mirror to us than anything because this scripture says, you do those same things. We should really say, wow, I've been there, I've done that. And, and you know what? I still can fail to love my neighbor. I still can fail to love God and get back to the heart of it in looking at ourselves. But we can get so focused on knowing all the sinners, knowing all the sin, when really our, our response should be, I need to humble myself before God because I've done the same things. Mm -hmm. So I've been stuck there for years. <laughs> that is a message that I have run in my life for years that kept me from the necessity of knowing Jesus, experiencing a rebirth, when really I needed to humble myself before God. Mm -hmm. The scriptures say, I have no excuse, especially when we start thinking, well, other people are the sinners. I know I'm better than them in some way. I also want to read Romans 1, 18 through 20. If you just look a chapter back, that no excuse language comes up. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. When we look at creation, people are without excuse from coming to know God. 
The other message I've gotten wrong, and I think Paul's speaking to human nature here, we all often get wrong. You'll hear this come up for people, is the life that I enjoy. So many times I'm, I'm speaking to people and I'm inviting them, hey, would you like to learn more about God? Come to church, uh, read the Bible. Uh, can I pray for you even? And they say, no, my life is good. Or they say, I don't need God to be happy. But what does the scripture say? If you pause for a moment and just consider all the ways that God has blessed you, given you fortune in life, everything you should be grateful for. If you live in a, a free country, if you have a roof over your head, if you have food, if you have family and friends, all the ways that God has blessed you, what message do we receive from that? Because before I came to Christ, it was, well, I have a good life. I must be a great person. <laughs> and my life is good, and it doesn't seem like I really need to do more because all of this is working out. So Romans 2.4 says it this way, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Contempt is a strong word. <laughs> Opposite of loving God. See, I didn't realize when I went, my, my life is good, I'm happy, you know, I'm kind of indifferent to God. I didn't realize that was actually contempt for God <laughs> to take advantage of the riches that he was pouring into my life and the blessings there. Contempt is a pretty strong word. So really, when we think that way, we should ask people, man, I, I see some Christ-like quality in you, or I see a blessed life, or wow, you seem to have things figured out. What do you think God, how do you think God is working or wants to use that, right? Because the message we should get from a blessed life is, wow, I, I really need to humble myself before God. He wants to do something in my life. Romans 2, 5 through 6 says, You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. Now, I wouldn't, uh, you know, when someone says I have a happy life, I wouldn't start telling them about the wrath of God right there. But I think I would invite them into, man, let's read the book of Romans. It says some incredible things about how much God loves us, but it also says that people tend to harden their hearts and deceive themselves and right here, store up wrath for themselves and against themselves. The third message we often get wrong, uh, the morals I have. We really get this wrong. It's, um, man, I was at the campus retreat this weekend and there's people from all over the Northwest and big cities and small cities coming together and all different beliefs and all different morals coming together, but uniting around Jesus. And, and yet in the back of my mind, a lot of them, some of them are going, wow, this is middle of the nowhere Oregon. And it's kind of interesting. This part of Oregon wants to secede and become a part of Idaho because they think they're better than the other part of Oregon. <laughs> and they think the morals I have are, are better than the morals that those people have, right? Yeah. We all have a sense of right and wrong. Paul tells us here that we even have a sense of right and wrong before we even read the Word of God. I hear that from a lot of people. Well, I don't really need the Bible or God to be a good person, right? Mm -hmm. To be a moral person. And the Bible says, we were in uh, Jeremiah 31 a couple of Sundays ago talking about the Word, that God is going to write that on our hearts. People do have this moral sense 
Romans chapter 2, 14 through 50 says, The requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness. Echoing back to what we talked about in Jeremiah. Now, when people think about their ability to know right from wrong, what do they usually think about themselves? I'm right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> or just, uh, I know right and wrong, so therefore I've, I've, I'm doing right, perhaps. Or they think I know something, therefore I've accomplished something. Maybe even they haven't actually, you know, I know I should feed the homeless, so I'm, I'm good. But have they gone and fed the homeless, right? There's a quote out there. It's like, um, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words, right? And it sounds really great. It's just not in the Bible, and it's kind of like saying, feed the homeless, and if necessary, give them bread <laughs> or food. And it's like, yeah, you kind of need to do both. <laughs> just to say that it is um, knowing the morals and acting upon the morals. All right, let me look at where we're at here. Knowing right and wrong shouldn't make us feel superior to other people just because we know something. Romans 2.13 says this, for it is... Not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Tim Keller has an illustration out there that imagine if you wore a recording device, kind of like I am, I suppose, right now, <laughs> and you wear it on your chest throughout your life, and it just records all the, all the moral advice you've given other people. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. And then you get to heaven, and God takes it and he plays it and uh, says, all right, so did you do this? <laughs> did you not do that? And it reminds us that our response should be, according to the scriptures, not I am superior, but I really need to humble myself before God. Because how many of us have obeyed even our own moral advice consistently? Not me. Not me. When you think about the morals you have, your sense of right and wrong, don't think I'm a good person, but humble yourself before God. Amen. Don't take security in your intelligence. Mm -hmm. Lastly, uh, the last one I want to pull out is the scriptures I've learned. That can make us think things about ourselves. When I was a, a little kid, my grandma would give me a golden dollar every time I learned a Bible verse. And I thought, man... I'm, I'm really great, <laughs> um, and I'm making a lot of money. There, there's, here's the proof. Here's the proof. But she probably should have given me a golden dollar for every Bible verse that I lived out, or every time I forgave someone or did a good deed. Maybe that would have caused problems as well. But, <laughs> but it's more than just memorizing the Word or, or knowing the Scriptures. And it, we, it, it does do a lot of good to memorize the Scriptures and read the Word. I want to affirm that. That, I mean, that can even be an impressive thing in and of itself. But often we incentivize that and we value that more than actually acting on the word and deceive ourselves. And it, it goes back to the scripture we often quote, James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word, but do what it says. Right. And then we, we often can just fall into teaching people that you can follow Jesus without actually following Jesus at the end of the day. So what does Romans 2 say about it? Romans 2, 17 through 24. Now again, Paul, he's talking to Jews and Gentiles. 
right? And we've heard language about him saying, hey, it's, it's been revealed to them, the people by creation, they're without excuse. But then he, he also leans into the, the Jewish audience that, hey, you who know the law and know the scriptures, you guys shouldn't be judging other people as well. Romans 2, 17 through 24, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Which is a scary one when you're standing up here and you're teaching. <laughs> and so I have to think all week thinking about this scripture. I'm going, man, am I teaching this to myself? Am I living this myself? And what am I relying on? If they relied on the law here, even in the new birth, what do we rely on? So are we relying on Jesus at the end of the day? Are we relying on our morals? Are we relying on the scriptures we've memorized? Are we relying on our knowledge? Are we relying on, I'm better than other sinners? Are we relying on, I had a, a conversion event years and years ago? Or, you know, I, I spoke to God a while ago, so now I'm good. Are we relying on ritual or even coming to church? I could go through the list. John 5, 39, I do have this one up here. It says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you have life. Mm -hmm. See, too often the scriptures themselves or even the new birth can drift into legalism, ritualism, sacramentalism, and we rely on them. Last uh, sermon, I talked about how Paul advised Timothy, and I said we should value the word of God because it does give us a knowledge for our salvation. And yet, we could also go to the word of God here and think, in here is my salvation, and totally miss Jesus. The Pharisees knew it better than anyone and totally missed Jesus. You can only rely on a new birth if it's a new birth that relies on Jesus. I'll say it that way. That's the new birth that is necessary. Let's not diligently search the scriptures and come up missing Jesus. It's really only appropriate, again, to, I, I'm going to lean into baptism now after Romans in, in conclusion, and we are going to go to a scripture that actually talks about new birth. <laughs> and throughout the scriptures, it'll, it'll mention it in ways of, um, you know, all of those who are born from above. Um, it'll, that'll come up in the Gospels, or it explicitly says, uh, be born again in other places in the Gospel. And it, it mentions it in First Peter. Peter talks about the new birth. And so that phrase itself, new birth, or born again really only comes up like twice in the scriptures when you come down to that exact wording. But before we even talk about the new birth, let's not jump into a scripture and say this scripture is the formula or the way or the thing to rely on. Because the new birth has to rely on Jesus. New birth itself, it's like, a, it's like the moon. It can be cold and gray and dark, but it can shine if the power and light of Jesus are shining upon it, then it's given all the power. Otherwise, it's cold, empty words on the page. We want it to help anchor us and frame us in a Jesus-centered life. So over in First Peter, if you turn your Bibles there, I do have it up here as well. 
Before we go and teach the will of God to others, or even teach others about the new birth, let's live the baptized life ourselves and make sure it's anchored in Jesus. Amen, church? Amen. Not just to know the scriptures. All right. When you think about the sinners you know, the life you enjoy, the morals you have, or the scriptures you've learned, it's not time to congratulate yourself, but humble yourself before God. Actually, I'll jump to here. Yeah, I'll share this picture before we even get in First Peter. It's a little blurry. It's from March 23rd, 2014, just a few days ago and nine years ago. And um, I wore my Revenge of the Creature Black Lagoon shirt, so I thought that would connect with baptism, and I relied on that. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I, I say that just to say it's not so much about what we even do in the baptism. In fact, in the Bible, when we read about it, it's always in the passive voice, but about what God is doing to us to live this immersed life. And Peter's about to talk about it even in the, um, the, the present perfect of a, a past event with a continuing action that this is a continuing life, and uh, all these guys came into my life because God came into my life. They baptized me on that day on March 23rd, and it's not even so much that I got baptized, but I experienced immersion. Um, again, all God's work. But I'll say this, I had to humble myself before God. <laughs> It's funny, I was up to the campus retreat this weekend and talking in the car with campus students, and nine years ago, I was on my way to a campus retreat, and for hours, talking with other men, wrestling with the scriptures, and I was going, what I wanted to do is come up with every single loophole <laughs> about why it wasn't necessary for me. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? I wanted to be the devil's advocate. And I think so often we try to convince people of their necessity for Jesus and why they should humble themselves before him. And they want to think of every single loophole and reason why not to. We'll talk about that more in this series. I had to forget about the sinners I knew or the morals that I had or the, the knowledge that I had or the scriptures I had memorized. And I had to humble myself before God and say, let's let God work and nothing that I've accomplished. I can't congratulate myself anymore. First Peter speaks about it in similar terms. I kind of had to go to give one more illustration. You ever hear that the difference between a cat and a dog is a, a dog says, wow, I'm, um, I'm fed by this person. This person houses me and takes care of me and provides for me. My, my owner must be God. Whereas a cat says, yeah, you've heard this, the cat says, wow, I'm fed by this person, they take me on walks, I must be a god. <laughs> Joey had to go from being the, the cat to the dog in his baptism and humble out and say, wow, there must be a god. All right, that got a few snickers. That one came through. First <laughs> Peter 1, 22 through 23. And actually, uh, yeah, we, we will start there, 22 through 23. Now I'm going to reverse it. Let's start with 1 Peter 3, 18, and then verses 20 and 21. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, because they formerly did not obey 
when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I bring this up because it's all about Jesus Christ. All about Jesus Christ. He attaches, he gives some Old Testament information here. But it's the good news of Jesus Christ taking our sins, forgiving us of our sins, and our, and our brokenness, putting us back together. Him being the only way so that we can have a new birth, so that we can be born again, mm-hmm. so that we can come to him, because we can't live this life without him. All about Jesus. So that we can't think, wow, I must be a really good person, but have to humble ourselves that Jesus has to work here. And I say that because I was speaking with a person just to this week that was referencing Matthew 7 and, oh, it's, there's a narrow road and all these churches. Who do you think will actually make it to heaven? And it seems so unfair that God would only save a few according to Matthew 7. And I said, well, Think about when God only saved eight people. (laughs) But this says that Jesus preached to those people. Perhaps through Noah himself might be one interpretation you take there, but only eight people saved through the water by God is not a lot of people, but was necessary for them to continue living their life with God. Was it necessary for Noah to build the ark and escape the flood? I think so. Otherwise, he would have been drowned on the earth. So, yeah, as as scary as Matthew 7 is, imagine the days of Noah. And that's how Peter pleads with them here. Perhaps another reminder is because Peter, in context, is writing to scattered exiles and smaller churches who are undergoing a lot of persecution, and there's a lot of evil people around them, just like in the days of Noah. And he's saying, hey, even if you're just a few people... If you're questioning, is this life really necessary? Do I really need to do it Jesus' way? Yes. And then Peter also says this, for those of us who have experienced the new birth, and maybe we're questioning, is continuing in this life really necessary? Or does it still have meaning for me today? 1 Peter 1, 22 through 23 says this, and this is where we end. Everyone with me? Yep. All right. Because this is a good truth about you. It says, again, uh, present perfect tense, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, one of only two times that that comes up in the Bible, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And here Peter's talking about the purification of baptism, that, hey, you've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but an imperishable one, an everlasting, eternal one, to continue in this life, to continue the life of loving your brother, sharing this with others. He's saying, hey, you are standing in the state of having been baptized with Jesus. Remember that, because that means that you should live this way in light of how he has acted for us. 
even for Paul back in Romans, just to contextualize, says, he says in Romans, when you were baptized is the audience he's writing to there. Speaking to the saints. So guys, in closing, as we think about our baptism, and as we read about baptism from Paul and from Peter, he's, he's writing to us saying, think about your baptism. <laughs> Remember when you were born again and live that born again life. Our baptism can grow more powerful over time because it's designed to bring us back to Jesus. Every time they talk about being born again, born from above, it's all through coming through Jesus Christ. And it's from Jesus where we have so much more to learn. How he transforms us and what he does for us. So the rest of the series, we're not going to do a a 10-point baptism (laughs) theological framework. We're going to try to set it in these letters from these men with all of the fruits that they attach to it for the intent that they actually wrote to the original audience in so that we can learn from them. Let's go to our Father in a word of prayer and thank him for this new birth. Father God, we thank you for making it possible. God, especially when we think back to those days of Noah and only eight persons coming through the water in the ark, God, we want to be in you. Lord, we thank you for that gift. We thank you for that opportunity, God. We want as many as possible to be in that saving boat. We want as many as possible to experience the new birth, God. And Lord, help us to remember it is all about you. God, we can't make you move by our own uh, works, by our own uh, striving, by our own, uh, Lord, by our own anything. But God, we can be prepared for you to move. And Lord, I just say that we're coming together this morning in prayer in fellowship, in your word, to be prepared for you to move in people's hearts and throughout the rest of our week, God. God, we thank you for how you moved 2,000 years ago as we take this bread representing your body, this juice representing your blood, God. We thank you for the opportunity to participate in this resurrected life with you. In Jesus' name, amen.